Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He helped with the making and even starred in a recent Hallmark movie. He owns a successful business in his home village of Noank and has recently started another. We talk to businessman and entrepreneur Andrew Blacker. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. He's lived in the Shoreline Village of Noank all his life and is the brother to longtime Connecticut Port Authority critic and recent Green Party candidate Kevin Blacker. But Andrew Blacker doesn't stand in the shadow of anyone. Running a successful food business called Carson's Store, which also starred, along with Andrew, in a recent Hallmark movie called Sand Dollar Cove. Andrew is not only a businessman, but also an entrepreneur and a bit of a local history buff and has opened a second business in the village in a building with a rich and varied history. I caught up with Andrew recently to talk about his new business called Palmer's Provisions and Pizza and to walk through the building it's based in for a step back in history tour. So we're talking to Andrew Blacker, who's been on the podcast before. Andrew, welcome back, because last time we spoke to you, it was all about how you and your brother and Noank, basically, had helped with a Hallmark movie. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be back. And, you know, we really appreciate it. We you know, had a great time last time and, you know, glad to glad to have another chance to talk with you. Well, we're going to be talking about another interesting thing. We're standing in your newest business venture called Palmer's Provisions on Pearl Street in Noang, but it's got a lot of history to it. So we're not just like promoting your business. We're actually going to be talking about this whole historic building. Tell us a little bit about it because people may know it by a different name because it's undergone several different names over the years, hasn't it? The business was actually originally the Universal food store. I think a lot of people are familiar with it as that. Run for probably 50 or 60 years by the Cortella family. And basically, it, you know, it went out of business in 2011 after Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, I think the community had kind of sorely missed having having a, a little store and being able to get some groceries and stuff like that. And so we wanted to kind of bring it back to, you know, bring it back to life and see if we couldn't make it work again. Well, we stood downstairs. We're going to be some, like exploring the entire building because it is just a little treasure trove. We're downstairs in the main part of the building, which is like a deli and it's like a store. And I'm also looking with you as we stand here at an incredible map of New London County. Tell us a little bit about that, because you've got lots of sort of antiques in here, which sort of like echo the past, really, of sort of the building. Right. So when we set out to, you know, try and make the store, I really wanted to highlight the history of Noank, and I really wanted to highlight the, you know, kind of nautical heritage between in Noank and Mystic and the Mystic River. And luckily, the owner of the building, Steve Jones, is a big-time nautical collector. And this map that we're talking about actually came from the New London Maritime Society, the Custom House Museum. That's on Bank Street in New London. This had been in their basement, and I was on their board of directors for a couple of years. And this had been such a large piece that it was never displayed. I had always admired it. And the real reason that I wanted to hang it 
was, so it's from 1853, and it actually shows Noank before the railroad tracks were brought into Noank. I thought that that was really significant because they say the Palmer family, who actually built this store originally, were the reason that the railroad came through. They said the railroad should have gone, you know, from where the train tracks crossed the Thames River right to Mystic, but instead they brought it down. It actually cut off maybe three different little coves and bays, BB Cove and Mumford Cove and Palmer Cove were all cut off. And I thought that this map was significant and a good display piece because it kind of illustrated a little piece of local history that no one really realized. And it was that, you know, the railroad was brought to Noank because of the Palmer family and it totally changed the accessibility of a lot of these these little bays. So I thought it was appropriate to put it in here. When you look at this building from the outside, it is a sizable building. Like I said, we're going to be exploring it. It's, it's like so many things, I suppose. You don't realize the history that you're looking at until you get inside and there's somebody like you who's got the passion i mean okay yeah you're running a business from here but you're also keeping the history alive you're delving into the history are you like a history buff I guess I would say I kind of am. I grew up in Noank. I've always been fascinated by anything that, uh, you know, was local history. You know, having Carson's, it was like I would always hear stories. Everybody would come in. They'd always talk. They'd tell me all the stories. All the old timers who lived here, you know, would always tell us what it was like in Noank. And I think Noank used to be a lot different than it is now. You know, at one point, the Palmer shipyard was employing 550 workers, which is an incredible number when you see Noank now to think about five. 550 people working at one place. It's just incredible. And I I guess I really just like, I've always liked telling stories. And I think that it's nice to, I accumulated all this knowledge of local history and tried to figure out a way that I could showcase it. And I thought that this place kind of was a good way to tell, you know, kind of tell the story of what Noank used to be and how it was a real thriving seaport. And it was a town and, it, you know, they say there was four churches. You can still see them around in town. There was grocery stores and there was a blacksmith shop and a barber shop and stables and a coal yard and a train station. And you look around and it's almost unrecognizable as a town because most of the business has gone out. But that was one of the things about keeping this place going was that it was one of the few remaining businesses and kind of a tribute to a time gone by in, you know, in Noak. For somebody who's young, I mean, you've got a family, the type of thing that you're sort of like doing, one would expect somebody in their older years to be doing, you know, not necessarily business, but this whole passion, you know, about history. I mean, it's not often something that's seen as a young person's thing, is it? No, I guess not. And I think that not many people, you know, I guess people my age or my friends are, are really interested in it, but it's like if it could so easily be lost, it's like anytime, it, it, you know, somebody passes away that was older from town, it was like you lose their entire lifetime of memories and stories and everything. And so it was just one of those things that I feel like it's important to, you know, remember the local history history and it, it's just something that I've always found fascinating. I always grew up like in metal detecting and looking for arrowheads along the coast. You know, Noank was originally Pequot land and it was just always a, a passion. So it kind of is something that I enjoy to do. So it doesn't doesn't seem too much like work. Well, like I said, we're going to go and explore the building. And we're, as I say, we're standing in the, the beautifully like decorated shop down here with antiques and this gorgeous, I think it's a tin ceiling, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's a tin ceiling, you know, antique tin ceiling and if you look around you can see these are actually ship spars that are supporting the building and you've got futtexes that are holding up as supports for the ceiling and we went down crawl space underneath and there is 60 foot long pieces of lumber because they would float you know they would either bring
bring in lumber by train or they would float it down the river. There was a sawmill at the Palmer shipyard. And like we mentioned earlier that they had the fi- over 500 people working for them. A lot of them were incredibly skilled shipwrights, carpenters, craftsmen. And so they had all these workers and this abundance of raw materials here in town. And they were able to basically use the labor and a lot of the lumber from the shipyard to build this building. And it's just it's just incredible because you can you can really see the craftsmanship and you know how solid of a building it is and i think that's why it's still you know it's still standing and it's oozing history like i said let's uh, take the stairs and go and have a little look at some of the other stuff in the building shall we yeah that sounds great so andrew we just come up the first flight i think we were on the second floor here come into a bit of a sort of a lobby with lots of doors and again more of these like struts which i'm guessing are like the uh, the original like woodwork you were talking about downstairs just give us a quick idea of what we're looking at here because it's it's interesting itself it looks like a lot of offices so this is the second floor above the main store this was shipyard offices you know so they had the store downstairs that was you know basically like a grocery store then they had shipyard offices and then as you work your way up we've got the big auditorium on the top but this would have been for uh, you know shipyard workers they all would have been here and i think it's a little unknown that this is even up here now tell me something, if I recall when we had a previous conversation about this, when we were doing a little bit of research with you, didn't you rent out some of this office space for the Hallmark movie? Yeah, so they actually, that, that was one of the one of the ways that I kind of got familiarized with this building. When Hallmark came, they needed, see, it was early April or so, it was still pretty cold, and they needed a place in town that they could feed 90 people. So there was 90 people in the crew for Hallmark. They needed a place that the caterer could set up. So we actually, you know, told them that we might have a place and showed them the room. And uh, it was the auditorium that was upstairs and they ended up renting, you know, they ended up renting that. And I think it worked out really well. It was incredible how many, you know, they rented the firehouse and the church and, the, you know, any open space. And so having this, you know, really was a benefit, I think, because they were able to, you know, keep everybody locally. And again, I mean, having somebody like you and your brother who have lived here all your lives, you know, know know Ank really well. I mean, just having that local knowledge must be incredible, you know, for organizations like that. Right. That was kind of what we had thought about after the fact. And I I still think, you know, that this building would be a good opportunity if anyone was ever going to film again. I regret not having downstairs, you know, when we did that. I think we could have done catering. We could have, you know, really housed them down there. There's the offices here and they needed places just for the staff and the crew to go and they were doing hair and makeup and you know they came to us and said anything that you could find if you could find a place that we could rent if you could find you know they needed porta potties they needed old fashioned truck which Kevin had i mean it, it, i i do think that having the local knowledge of it was really useful to them and i think that if they ever come back you know or if anybody ever films again that this would be a really valuable asset to anyone who was trying to film because i think you could kind of use it as the home base and that could be like their headquarters. So I hope, you know, I hope that uh, we get another chance to work with someone on another film. I'm sure you will. Let's walk through here because, like I said, it's an amazing set of offices and we can probably hear from the audio as well that it's a very different like sound as we sort of walk through here. It's very light as well, which I'm noticing. I mean, you know, lots of windows everywhere. 
Yeah, there's beautiful, you know, beautiful natural light and, you know, really tall windows, which was one of the, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about the building. In front of us is actually the office where they started, let's see, a few years, it's probably been 10 years or so, but the Real McCoy Rum Company was actually started by a man named Bailey Pryor. Bailey had his office here and they, he's a filmmaker. They actually made a documentary about Bill McCoy. He was a rum runner. Basically, they said he, he smuggled something like $3 million worth of rum into uh, New England without ever firing a shot. Uh, so he was a different type of bootlegger. I think a lot of times people picture gangsters and, you know, in in cars, but this guy had, you know, had a, a sailboat, I believe it was called Arethusa, and he would sneak rum, you know, sneak rum into the U.S. on a sailboat. And so they started making a documentary about him actually right here in the second floor, and they hatched the rum company, the Real McCoy, and that, that has taken off. And, it, you know, I think it was picked up by InBev, who also distributes Corona, and it's really turned into quite a success. So it's incredible, you know, when you look at this this empty office to think that, you know, there was another another really successful business that was started right here. So as we walk through here some more, we are looking... This is just incredible. It's a ticket booth? Yeah, so it, we're at the top of a big set of stairs, and the staircase actually leads right down to the road. The door is just to the left of our entrance for Palmer's Provisions, and when you get to the top of the first flight of stairs, there is a wood ticket booth. You know, it looks like it's out of a movie. It would have been where you would buy tickets to, say, dances or any local events. This building was really, you know, kind of the community center and the town center. And so there would be dances. I've heard that people had weddings on the third floor. You know, it was a community a community space. And so you would come up here, you would buy tickets to a show or to a dance, and then you could uh, take the next flight of stairs up and you would be in the auditorium which is what we're going to do now. These are just some gorgeous stairs. They must be about, what, six foot wide. So it's a lovely, lovely staircase. Lots of gorgeous natural wood. As we make our way up there, you can hear our footsteps actually on here. And more secrets. This is the final floor, I believe, isn't it, that we're actually going up to? Yes. Yeah, so this is the this is the third floor. And I don't think anybody, not that I don't think anybody, but not many people realize that this room is up here. You know, my brother has lived in Noank for 35 years. And I think until maybe nine or 10 months ago, he had never seen this. And it's like you've gone down Pearl Street a million times and you pass by and you see a building, but you would never think that you could have an auditorium or a, a room like this. It's got to be 16 or 18 foot ceilings and it's all domed you know it's just an incredible little treasure hiding up here it is amazing i mean we have literally stepped back in time again just you know gorgeous wood which you don't see everywhere like you said this dome ceiling am i looking at a what would have been a bar as well yeah so so this was a bar and i think they actually used this for the theater you could come in you could get a drink you could go in and dance and you know they filmed a, a, a few documentaries up here and it's just incredible that like you said it's almost like time stood still you would never never picture this being up here without seeing it for yourself and there's scattered around i mean i'm guessing were these here we've got like uh, old-fashioned oil lanterns it looks like a project 
writer. We got typewriters. Is this all part of the stuff that was here that you came across? Yeah, all of this stuff. And so a lot of the things that I was lucky enough, you know, to be able to use as decorations for the first floor, I found up here there was two 1930s swordfish fighting chairs, all brass hardware. There was the original letters from the front of the store, which we actually put, you know, backed on a board and displayed those down behind the deli. There was ship's wheels and, you know, all sorts of treasures that lucky enough to be allowed to use you know steve and and jeff jones said anything that you find up there if you you know you think that it would make a nice display and so so we started going through and finding all sorts of things there was lots of old authentic wooden signs from old businesses in the town and i can't say enough about how how thankful i am and how lucky it was that so many of the things that we are now displaying were already here it is amazing let's take that final walk through the doorway to this just utterly amazing auditorium with this beautiful again ceiling you'll probably once again as you're listening to this hear that the audio has changed sort of again we've got that little bit more of a of an echo there's a gorgeous stage as well uh, in front of us obviously needs a lot of work I mean a lot of TLC but I mean what what more can you tell us because I mean this looks like it could have probably sat at least about a hundred or more people Yeah, I would say certainly 100 people could have fit up here. I think that it still has the bones, and I think that one day it could could definitely be brought back to life. The stage is incredible, and there's a lot of natural light up here as well. If you look out some of the windows, you can actually see Fisher's Island Sound. You can see Ram Island. There's actually two windows that are on the top of the stage, and if you climb up those, it looks over any of the buildings in Noank, and we're up on maybe a 50-foot hill but you can see you know clear shot to block island so i think that the location and the elevation really uh you know make it a desirable place and i think that with some work that one day it could definitely be brought back and would make an incredible you know gathering room and maybe a place like a banquet hall and what else do you know about you know maybe what was undertaken here by way of entertainment i mean you know we know you've got this great interest in history i mean is there anything more that you can tell us about this space or what else was actually conducted here? I've had people tell me that they can remember they would put sawdust on the floor. So they would actually throw sawdust down so you could, when you dance, you know, that your feet would slide on the wooden floors. And they can tell me that, you know, they told me that they remember, you know, that was one thing that they distinctly remember was there being sawdust on the floor and the floor seeming like an ice skating rink, uh, you know, and that it was the most fun for dancing. And a lot, a lot of good memories. I had somebody tell me, I want to say early 70s, maybe 1972, they came to a wedding here. So, you know, it's probably been 50 years or so since it was really, you know, really in use. But in the big picture, that's not that, you know, that long ago. And I think that's the goal is one day to get this and, you know, get it fixed up and try and bring this back into use. Yeah, because, I mean, as you look around, I mean, okay, it's in need, as I say, of a little bit of TLC. But bearing in mind, if, as you say, it's not being used for at least about 50 years, it's not in bad shape. I mean, one would expect it to have dilapidated, obviously, a little bit more. But, I mean, this building clearly is one of those ones that has been built to last. When you first stepped into this all that time ago, you know, what was your reaction to it? I mean, I know you were obviously looking to do the, the business downstairs. You've succeeded in that. But, I mean, what was your in- initial reaction? when you stepped into this building 
I was speechless when I saw this room. I had heard that there was an auditorium, and when I walked in, there was full-size indoor tennis courts. They were filming Bailey, who we had mentioned earlier, who started The Real McCoy, was actually filming a documentary on the history of... Uh, let's see, tennis. And I want to say that it was maybe French tennis. It was like a variation, kind of like a indoor paddle ball. And they had actually built an entire indoor tennis court. You know, I think that kind of gives you an idea of just how big the room is. There so was, right here in right, this room. Right where you're standing, you know, and if you look over here, there's still some of the wood that they used. And, uh, it, you know, there was a full tennis court in here and there was people playing tennis. Some of the tennis rackets are still in there behind the bar. And, you know, I, I just... I couldn't believe it, and it took a little while to really take it all in, but uh, I sat up here and I watched them play tennis, and they were filming, and you know, just the sheer size of it was impressive. As I drove up here today, and like I said, I had been here before just to do a little bit of research with you, but you drive up, I mean, you know, Noank is that quintessential, beautiful, New England little town by the sea. So, I mean, it's got its beauty already. You just don't realise as you pull into the parking lot, and it's a big building. I mean, you know, it's probably one of the bigger buildings here in Noank, isn't it? You just do not get a sense of what is actually inside, which I think is so exciting. I don't think you can tell at all. I mean, it looks, because it's such a traditional New England-looking building, I mean, it, it just has the pitched roof, so you wouldn't picture a dome ceiling. And because it's the store downstairs, so many people, I think, have been in that they just take for granted what's upstairs and uh, I think that the real incredible part is that this was never torn down or changed or that it was left completely intact just the way it was that if you walked in here 50 years ago the last time there was a wedding that you would have seen pretty much exactly what you're seeing right now it's almost like a time capsule and I think you don't often especially in such a developed place or a place that there's so much going on, find something like that that hasn't been developed or changed or turned into condos in the early 90s. I think there's actually a New York Times article about it, but they tried to develop this into condominiums. And if that had gone through, you know, we wouldn't be standing up here and there's no chance that the public ever could have, you know, gotten to use it. It would have just been a single person's, uh, you know, residence and, you know, would have been something that no one ever got to see or know about. So I think it's good because we've got the chance to, to try and open it back up and see if, you know, we could get, get the public access to it again. No one could really use a place like that. We don't have anything like that down here. We've got Carson's and you've got a few little places, but there's no place really that people can meet. And I think that it would be a valuable asset. And I think it, you know, is attainable. Well, I have no doubt because you only have to look at what you've done downstairs already, obviously in the main part of the store. And yeah, it's going to take some time and a lot of creative energy and as we say money, but it's certainly looking at it is going to be totally worth it. We'll continue to follow the story with you and we hope that you're able to turn this back into what it formerly was. So thank you again for inviting us into this and for coming back onto the podcast, Andrew. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. And you can find out more about Andrew's new business and see photos of the building at the website palmersprovisions.com. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. 
Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. After winning a second term in office in the recent November 8th elections against Republican challenger Bob Stefanowski, Governor Lamont gave a press briefing recently to announce what his priorities will be in 2023 and changes to his leadership team, saying the new term will be a bittersweet one. The beginning of a new term is a period of transition, which is a little bittersweet for me because we have a lot to celebrate over the last four years. And I've got two people I really want to thank for that. It's also a period of optimism, and um, and I've got some new folks who help take the lead, and an opportunity to introduce them. And that's general counsel, and that's uh, chief of staff. Lamont announced two changes to staff and his team, one being Natalie Braswell, who will take up the position as Lamont's general counsel, replacing Nora Dennehy. Braswell most recently held the role of state comptroller from Kevin Lember, who stepped down due to ongoing health problems. And Paul Bounds, who serves as Lamont's current chief of staff, will step aside and be replaced by Jonathan Dock, who is Lamont's director of policy. Mount has been chief of staff since February 2020 and at the press conference thanked the governor for the opportunity he'd been given. Governor, you gave a kid from East Hartford the ability to serve his state. You trusted me, you relied on me, but you wouldn't believe how much I learned from you because of your optimism, your passion, and your purpose. It was very easy to be your chief of staff because of you always put the people of Connecticut first. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to serve as your chief of staff during probably one of the most pinnacle moments in our state's history. Mount and Dennehy both stepped down from their positions to pursue other professional opportunities. Doc and Braswell will begin their new roles in January 2023. Attorney General William Tong announced recently that Connecticut, along with 39 other attorneys general, has reached a $392 million multi-state settlement with the technology firm Google over its location tracking practices relating to Google account settings. It's the largest multi-state privacy settlement in U.S. history. Connecticut will receive more than $6.5 million from the settlement. Tong said the information that is gathered by tech giants like Google and other companies is an invasion of people's right to privacy. This information is among the most sensitive information about us as individuals that's out there today. Think about that. Not just your social security number, biometric information, height, weight, gender, profession, what you like to buy, but where you're standing physically at any one time has so many implications for public safety, for personal security, and just invasions of our personal privacy. Michelle Seagull is the commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection and said consumers in the state and elsewhere had a right to know how their personal data is being used and companies like Google need to be transparent about their data gathering practices and where the information is going. Some consumers may enjoy having, you know, it it sounds big brother, but having things tracked, seeing where they are, maybe being able to have family keep track of where they are if you're on a long road trip or something. So it's not that there's never a reason somebody may want that on. Maybe they like sort of when Google can give them the history of the fun places they visited over the last year, but they should do that knowingly and intentionally. And this settlement goes a long way in ensuring that that is going to be what happens. 
In May of this year, Connecticut passed the Connecticut Data Privacy Act, one of the first comprehensive consumer privacy laws in the country. The act provides Connecticut consumers baseline privacy rights, including the right to access, delete and stop the sale of their data. It also requires companies to be transparent about how they use and secure data, as well as obtain consumer consent before collecting certain categories of sensitive information, including precise location data. Some Connecticut residents may be looking at higher water utility prices over the next three years. The state's Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, or Pura, is considering a 25% rate increase over three years from water company Aquarian. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has more. The state's Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, or Pura, is considering a rate increase over three years from water company Aquarian. The first-year price hike of 13.9% is the highest. It would be followed by a 6% increase in 2024 and another 3.7% in 2025. This could lead to increases of up to 27% for Connecticut residents. AARP Connecticut is among the group's voicing concerns, with a petition of 2,400 names opposed to the increase. The group's John Erlinghauser says higher bills present challenges for people over 50 with limited incomes. They're going to be hit with higher utility costs come January for electricity and natural gas. And when you start adding on water and then, as I said, all the other costs having to do with the daily life, you know, food, medicine, people are going to be put in that position of, do I not take medicine or do I pay my utility bills like water and heat? Aquarian has said it's been nine years since it's had a rate increase. AARP isn't alone in opposing it. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal has said it's the last thing households need. The Public Utilities Regulatory Authority said it is unable to comment on a pending case. Hearings on the request begin on November 22nd. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.